You're listening to Fueled, a Finstamaker podcast, and I'm your host, Catherine Finstamaker. Well, good morning, John. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Before we begin, I'd like to just give our audience a brief intro as to who you are. Dr. John Foray is Vice President of Environmental here at Finstamaker and the environmental leader to a staff of 14 biologists. His duties include supervising all environmental staff activities as they relate to industry permitting activities of air, water, and wetland, wetland delineations, mitigation banking consultation, wetland habitat restoration consultation for emergent marsh, shoreline protection, and reef restoration, environmental assessments, biological assessments, project budgets and timelines, and project management. Prior to his time at Finstamaker, Dr. Foray served as a research fisheries biologist for 18 years with the Department of Commerce, NOAA's National Marine Fisheries Service, Galveston Laboratory. He was the team leader within the fishery ecology branch in Lafayette, Louisiana, and managed all activities associated with the Coastal Wetlands Planning Protection and Restoration Act, aka QIPRA, as they related to coastal fisheries habitat restoration. He was also a federal restoration project manager for NOAA Fisheries in the QIPRA program. That is a mouthful. It is. Well, welcome this morning. And again, thank you for coming on our podcast, season one. Good morning, and thank you very much for having me. So we'll just jump right in. I'm going to ask you some questions, maybe about some hot topics du jour, and we'll get your two cents. How's that sound? Very good. Perfect. For those who aren't familiar, the Coastal Wetlands Planning Protection and Restoration Act, QIPRA, is the federal legislation enacted in 1990, which was designed to identify, prepare, and fund construction of coastal wetlands restoration projects. How has this legislation impacted your career? Wow, what a first question. So back up in time a little bit, at that point in my life, I I was just uh, entering into my graduate program for a doctorate in wetland ecology. And Quipper came online, had been in existence for about four or five years, but in those early days was going through a lot of growing pains of how to get a project identified and on the ground. And uh, the NOAA Fisheries Office here in Lafayette needed somebody who was from the area, familiar with the area, familiar with land owners and names and pronunciation. Understand that Quipra while it is federally funded, it's a grassroots program that starts with the landowner. So it's dependent entirely upon the landowner feeding the information to the rest of the program about the problems. Who else would know better than than the landowners? Exactly. And so that started my career. Uh, I started as a grad student and eventually uh, became the team leader in Lafayette office uh, while completing my doctoral program, which... um, was a great experience. It, it gave me a sense of fulfillment to work with the landowners. I was responsible for an area in the coastal zone from the Texas state line to about the Atchafalaya River Delta. And um, I had colleagues in Baton Rouge who picked up from about the Atchafalaya River Delta onto Mississippi. 
So by giving me a territory of sorts, mm. I, I got to know the, the landowners in coastal zone of Louisiana, which is about 83% privately owned, which wow. makes Louisiana unique in that regards as well. Uh, a lot of the other parts of the United States are in public hands, but in this case, we're mostly private. So it, it shaped me um, to have that sense of fulfillment through a regular regimented process called Quipra, an annual cycle. It keeps everybody in check and on time, meeting milestones. And so you tended not to get bogged down in a bureaucracy, but rather you were responsible to the landowner okay. who, who had genuine, real interest that they were losing property. Where are we? That was the question. Where are you in the process? So that shaped me in, fill, in fulfilling uh, the ability to, uh, to account for our actions to those landowners. And, you know, you, you go through the process of thinking about it, thinking you have an idea, and then the fulfillment of actually seeing it incorporated and laid out on the ground is a very fulfilling completion. In dealing with those private landowners, has that, how is that different? per se, from dealing, you said, in other states where, you know, it's government-owned land? Sure. So, so well, well, real-world experience here in coastal zone is you have uh, either federal refuges or state refuges, sometimes a state park that owns the property that you may or may not be dealing with. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, like any agency, there's turnover. There are staff come and go and, and transition into other positions. Okay. And so you, you had, they came to the project with a real understanding of how the state government or the parish government works. Conversely, dealing with the landowner, they're dealing with the firefight right now. They're losing property. What do we need to do right now? Mm -hmm. And I've built friendships that started back in 1996, 97, when I started this process, that I'm still in touch with them today. And, okay. and on a personal level, how are the grandkids doing? Where's your daughter now? Those sorts of questions. So true friendships. And, and it was a win-win for everybody because when you have a program such as Quipra that truly cares about the, the outcome, it's not just the process, but it's that truly cares because they monitor for 20 years. So the program doesn't get to build it and walk away. They're obligated for 20 additional years to how that project is performing and does does it warrant changes to anything that was originally designed. So that makes it very unique. That's really interesting. I like that you get to be, I guess, more personal and that the, the landowners have more of a sense of urgency. Right. That's really neat. Can you tell us about your very first coastal infrastructure project. Sure. Um, it's called Little Vermilion Bay Terracing. It's a project that's located just south and west of Intracoastal City. Um, there was a lot going on on that project. My boss at the time decided that she wanted to move, and so she moved out of Lafayette and back home, which was Washington, D.C. I was in graduate school, and it was all very much a surprise to me that I was handed this project. And so the project was in its infancy of design. And being a graduate student, I knew that I could 
get into the library, start doing research about the design. I'm not an engineer. Um, some people say that I play one, <laughs> but but I'm very I'm very clear. I'm not an engineer. Um, and and so the terracing project was designed to simulate a delta. So in a delta situation, you have fresh water and sediments coming through. And where the water gets quiet, that's where the mud or the sediments fall out. And you start getting land building. This project area had a very similar situation with the water flow and the sediments. And so we decided as a team, let's try and make a mini delta by arranging terraces like you would see if you looked at Google Earth and look at the Mississippi River, those angles. And, and it's worked out. It's, uh, it's building land quite successfully. It's been helped since construction by um, uh, other federal agencies coming in behind Quipra and planting, doing vegetative plantings when the land pops up out of the water, um, or uh, even with the Boy Scouts coming in and doing um, uh, marsh maneuvers where they come in as high schoolers and, and help the landowners by doing these plantings. So it's been very rewarding. That's really neat. And yeah. you can still watch it. It was successful. I As go, a graduate student, you saw it through and you were brave and bold and it worked out. It, it's worked out and I and I get to see it annually. I make a trip through there to make sure I just go take a look. Google Earth is a wonderful tool, but for a biologist to be able to get on the ground is, is more fulfilling. So I tend to make an annual trip through. Yeah, I remember driving like in the car with my family and we would drive over this particular bridge that my grandfather had designed. And it was like, this bridge is still here, you know, like fascinating. We're driving over it. So I can imagine that you would pass that along down the line and and they would go and visit your project. Well, the the kids tend, their eyes tend to blur over when dad starts talking about plants and mud and water. But 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 they they're interested for the first few minutes anyway. <laughs> well, let's follow up with a favorite project to date. Can you talk about a project that you found really invigorating and rewarding? Okay, I I can't give you one, but I'll, okay. I'll give you I'll give you two, and, okay. and one is from that personal satisfaction, and one is. I'm just proud as a peacock that that it happened. Okay. And the one from the personal satisfaction is called the Rockefeller Refuge Gulf Shoreline Stabilization Project. Okay. A mouthful. Yes. We call it Rockefeller Shoreline. And basically, um, it's a project that I ended up with after another agency investigated it as a Quipper project. They received, they did a, a rough cost estimate, and it was alarming at the cost. Rockefeller, as as, uh, I should let you know, is where I did my master's and my doctoral research. Okay. And so getting to know over a six-year period the staff at Rockefeller, those men and women are truly professional, dedicated to their jobs, whatever the job is. And they adopted me um, as a grad student and showing up every month to do research as part of that family. And so when this opportunity came across my desk that I had heard that an agency wasn't going to give it up or going to going to to another agency, we went after it as NOAA Fisheries uh, to see if we could do. And their problem is is that they're losing. You know, when when somebody hears about shoreline erosion, that's physically what was going on in, in Rockefeller. Okay. On an average year, they're losing sixty feet a year. 
But on bad um, tropical storms, not even a hurricane, but a tropical storm, it's been measured at over 200 feet of loss. In, wow, in that that's one event. It is. And so um, it was a very long process to get it to construction. It's currently under construction. Uh, while I was with NOAA Fisheries, it took me 12 years of staying with the course. It's an important project. Let's do a demonstration to prove to the program that it's worth what the that we, ideas can work because okay. it was a very challenging set, uh, site in that the mud is very soft in that part of the, our Louisiana coast, highly erosive. And so you have to be very careful of what you place out there so that it'll stay. Okay. And as I said earlier, Quipra is into a project for 20 years. And so they didn't want to build something and, and have it settle out of the out of sight and become ineffective or become a hazard. Okay. So you had to prove it. I had to prove it. And and by gosh, we proved it. And as one of my final um, actions as a federal em- employee, I saw that that project was voted to go to construction. And currently, it's under construction. It's going great. It's uh, not only stopping erosion, it's collecting sediment behind it. So it's building some of that shoreline back. And uh, I'm very proud of that because it was a way for me to give back to the group of people who gave me my practical side of my education. University of Louisiana at Lafayette, book smarts. I had phenomenal instruction, phenomenal um, uh, committee members. Yeah. When to take it from the book and then to apply it, that's where the Rockefeller family came in and, and helped me. So I'm very, I'm very satisfied with that. And then professionally, professionally uh, satisfied is um, a project known as Queen Bess Island Restoration. Yes. It's a project that I've worked on uh, or managed since coming to Fence to Maker. It, I'm most proud of it because, one, it's helping the Louisiana brown pelican, our state bird. Two, that we were given a very impossible deadline to bring a project from idea to bid. And, and what is the definition of an impossible timeline? Well, okay. So historically, it, would, it should take you somewhere between 34, I'm sorry, 24 to 36 months. Okay. To go from a, a concept, something sketched out, literally sketched out. That seems like a long time. Well, but but understand, you have to collect data at the site. Right. You have to analyze the data. You have to go in for design. Mm-hmm. That after the design is is pretty well on its way, then you have to go to the regulatory side of the house and apply for permits to okay. construct which currently will take about 12 months. Okay, the time's getting shorter now. Yeah, right? <laughs> okay. And then, then then comments come back from that, and then you might have to play with the design a little bit to answer questions. Okay. All the while, you're watching the budget, right? Okay. Uh, can we build what we said we are going to build with the money available? Right. Right? So, yeah, 24 months okay. would, be a good, would be a good case. In the case of Queen Bess, we went from... Pitching ideas to the stakeholders, which okay. was both federal and state individuals, agencies, to bid and and opening the bid in less than 11 months. Wow. Right. 
right? Wow, that is and that is amazing. That is not skipping any steps. That's not getting quick on this, that, or the other. But it's it's having a smart and aggressive team that was able to to do things in tandem rather than waiting for one thing and then the next. We were able to get things going at, in tandem, and it saved time as well as as being smart. We we went with a non traditional method of construction, and um, and that in itself saved probably four to six months worth of time just to go with that way. That's really neat, and you do have an awesome team. I don't know if you want to highlight your team members. Well, uh, right out of the right out of the gate, the project was managed by Garvin Pittman, phenomenal individual, strengths. Um, you know, you would never know that he is a chemical engineer by training. <laughs> Because he brings that whole sense of the big picture to the to the project. Yeah. Keeping an eye on schedule and timeline. We had two phenomenal engineers that worked on it. Uh, three phenomenal engineers. Miss Amanda Phillips um, has been very attentive to detail and needs and oversight of what the state needed in order to get a successful project design. Bliss Bernard did a phenomenal job of providing uh, both support, review, evaluation, feedback as needed. And then Mr. Uh, Dan Aucutt with our geotechnical. Uh, he led that whole emphasis and worked with the other two engineers to develop this uh, approach of how to construct the project. Yeah, so, you definitely have a great team. It's a phenomenal group. I want to move to some news a recent opinion piece in The Advocate written by Emily Buxton, who is policy director for the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana, suggests that we should be pursuing natural or green infrastructure, such as barrier islands, dunes, and oyster reefs to mitigate flood risk, in addition to more traditional gray infrastructure like seawalls, levees, and breakwater structures. So what I want to ask you is, how can we go about finding the right balance of coastal infrastructure to protect our coast? Well, I think balance is the key word. There are going to be situations where you have no choice but to go with the tried and true engineering approach, whether it's it's concrete or rocks or an earthen barrier. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, other places, though, you're given different uh, ingredients, I like to call them, on okay. the coast, where it might be a freshwater flow that has sediment. And so you can take an earthen terrace and shape it like, design it and lay it out like a delta would, okay. a river would naturally, and get the land building that way. And that literally took industry, which had normally would normally be constructing oil and gas canals, by explaining what I was after. I was after the channel that they were dredging, not so much the terrace, okay. to distribute the water. When they had the aha moment, I knew I had them as part of my team and not just doing a job of constructing so many feet in so many days. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that balance is always there where project managers need to look for opportunities okay. to maximize both. Um, there's a new phrase uh, being used. Um, it's really, it's not new, but it, it's called... Um, Is it something you mentioned to me previously? Living shorelines. Living shorelines. Thank you. Living shorelines. I'm looking at this beautiful potted plant and I'm thinking, I know I, I know the answer to it. So living shorelines. Well, that's that 
and oftentimes can be plants placed in such a way that they're protecting the shoreline. But in some cases, you need to come in with a, a semi-hard or a semi-gray structure okay. where it could be a concrete mat material that has large openings in it that the plants can emerge from or you plant the plants in. So okay. what do you... What you're left with visually is it looks like a shoreline, but if you were to nose a boat up onto it, you're going to hit concrete. Okay. That sounds it's, smart. It, it, it is. It's taking advantage of the opportunities that you have there. That won't work in all cases, but mm-hmm. where it is working or could work, we need to stay open to that. Quipra has a program, a sub-program within its large-scale projects called the Demonstration Program. Okay. And that's to give thinkers, inventors, an idea to get an idea from the paper to practical experience. It's tough. It's not an easy, oh, I have an idea, you're funded kind of approach. They have to go through rigorous reviews of engineering and biological assessments. Yeah. And then and then ultimately, they'll get a small piece constructed, paid for by, by Quipper dollars. As a test. As a test. And okay. then it's monitored and it's reported on back to the program of what worked, what didn't work. Um, That's really the scientific method in action. It, it is, is what it sounds like. It is. Although Quipra being federally funded has to be careful that, that we don't call it that. Okay. I mean, and they don't. They don't. But yes, but it it's is. It's like hypothesis. I'm just, I'm recounting, you know, sixth no, grade right. science, you know, it's like hypothesis, test, repeat, you know, analyze. That's exactly and- right. That's exactly right. And the one hang up, I mean, on, on a demonstration is that it's not tested yet. So the engineering side of, of any restoration program wants to design something that works. That's mm-hmm. a, that's their goal. Yeah. I, I get it. And if you if you added a demonstration piece to it, okay. they get really worried about that. Whereas the bugs and bunny people like me tend uh, to say, ah, oh, it's close enough. We well, that's good enough. No, 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 no. We need to know all these the factors of safety and, yeah. and what, what does that entail. And so that's been the tug of war that I've I've had. But it's back to your question, this is a, a the awakening of the education of the general public, mm-hmm. of, hey, we don't have to go with a wall, or mm-hmm. we don't have to go with a rock structure. Mm-hmm. We could reshape the, the coast or do this or redirect some water to help fortify what's there, because in the long run, it's less expensive Okay. than to try and um, go in and rebuild something is more expensive than to refurbish something that's in decline. That's a really great answer. Um, Moving on. In 2017, uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers put out our Louisiana Infrastructure Report Card, in which our coastal infrastructure received the grade of D+, which is not out of step with our other infrastructure components, unfortunately. Um, Can you expound upon this as to why we're struggling to adequately protect our coast? Well, it it goes back to how the coastal zone was formed here in Louisiana and and not to blur anybody's eyes over Mm -hmm. um, it, particularly in southeast Louisiana, we have sediments that we've built on as as 
communities that have only been in place for about 10,000 years. And geologically, it's not a really long time. Okay. So if, if an individual were to stand on I-10 at the Henderson exit and look east towards Mississippi, mm-hmm. and I had a magic wand and could scrape the mud off, there would be a canyon there that the oh. Mississippi River cut during the last ice age as the, the world's oceans were sucked up into ice sheets. The river still flowed and it cut through the sand, the Pleistocene sand, and it just it just cut a ditch. And then as the earth began to warm again, things flooded, sediments were released. And so that valley, that, that ditch, is about 600 feet deep at its deepest. Okay? So it goes down as you're looking east, and then at, at about a line, even with Homa, is its deepest part. And then it starts to come back up, and, and it emerges back around the state line with Mississippi. Wow. So you have this valley. The geologists call it the alluvial valley, but it's a okay. valley. So I've heard of alluvial soil. Is mm-hmm. that the, is that of the same? Correct. It's okay. recently deposited material mm-hmm. that is going through natural subsidence. And so it's it's sinking under its own weight. Is subsidence mean sinking? Sinking. Okay. And so what a river system normally would do is replenish that sediment that it might be subsiding or parts of it every year with this spring event. I'm mm-hmm. talking to you today where it's spring flood right now in the Mississippi River. Okay. But we've channeled it since settling Louisiana mm-hmm. to focus that material out to reduce the flooding to farms and, and infrastructure. Okay. Well, in southeast Louisiana, our levee system is built upon this same valley of material. So when you construct to X feet, it's already starting to sink from subsidence. And then you're adding, you're focusing more weight of that levee in that one spot. So okay. it's it's sinking. Subsidence is the reason why you see manhole covers in New Orleans higher than the street. Okay. Right? And so the, the manhole covers were, I mean, the manhole in the sewer was laid and compacted and placed. And so it sticks higher than the road around it and the yards, which are sinking slowly. And so the, you, have, you have to watch out for the low, lower end of your car in yeah. many cases. So it's difficult. It's not a build it and walk away scenario. And the storms of 2005 really awakened the giant, that being the general public, Mm -hmm. we were all lulled into complacency Mm -hmm. that the levees would protect us because they always had. Right. And then you get- A failure. You get a failure. Mm -hmm. And people had made decisions to stay based on that comfort level. Right. And we ended up with a a fantastically tragic humanitarian situation Mm -hmm. in New Orleans after after Katrina. Crisis. And, and so the core mm-hmm. of engineers, along with the state, has been working extremely hard to get those levees back up to where they need to be, where it's projected they need to be. Okay, based on that subsidence. That subsidence and the warming of the earth and mm-hmm. the, the water levels coming up. It's called relative sea level rise, the the water level's going up, your land is subsiding, and that difference is called relative sea level rise. Do you find then, it just seems like maybe Louisiana is just a bigger challenge than infrastructure, let's say, like in a, um, a landlocked state? Yes. 
that it's more of a puzzle here. There are more factors, more components, more elements that can really screw up your job. There's more to deal with, definitely more to deal with. So do you take that on as a challenge or? Well, sure. And, And as the science side of the house has become to understand a little bit better on uh, more accurate projections of sea level rise or subsidence. And Mm -hmm. in the early days, I hate to admit it, but I was part of the early days in my Mm -hmm. career of subsidence and the understanding people would would measure subsidence rate and say, okay, that's it. Well, what we're realizing is it's very different across our landscape. Okay. Um, and so you can't take a subsidence rate and use that number much much further than a, than where you can see as you stand there and look around. Okay, it's uh, shifting. It's, it, 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 the, the way differentiation that, is the differentiation of our soil types and the way that the coast formed. It's very different. Okay. So, uh, but that's all improved. And so, as that's improved, when you go to design a project. You bring that into the engineering formulas to say, okay, if we if we want a marsh, for instance, a marshland to be tidally influenced for most of a 20-year life, we need to build it to this elevation. It's going to be subsiding and doing compacting and doing all its things. But for the next 20 years, it'll function, that's mm-hmm. very important, to the bugs and the bunnies as a marsh. Right. And so, yes, that's very much brought into the factor of how you design uh, a wetland project. And so that D plus is really a reflection of like basically the Louisiana struggle with our alluvial plain and and also probably some a bit of budget. A bit of budget would be a good way to put it. Our dependency on um, one particular industry as a tax base is troubling. As, as we see the the price of that commodity go up and down, so does our income as a state and our revenue. Mm-hmm. So it it's a struggle. But I think that's a fair way to put it. The Delta side of Louisiana, the Deltaic Plain, is, is struggling with all of that background information and problem. Um, but, you know... There has been neglect as it comes from lack of funding for things like bridges and mm. and water control structures and things of that nature. So I, I'm not surprised um, as we're compared to the rest of the country. Okay. So based on the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authorities, um, CPRAs, uh, published annual plans since 2010. Annual expenditures for these projects average at $732 million. How much do we need to be spending to curb what's happening to our coastline? And I guess overarchingly, is it possible to win the fight against our vanishing coastline? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> so... We brought the big questions for you. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. So back in the in the late '90s and early 2000s, this pre-hurricane 2005, we were working with economists that helped us understand what was the value of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. As I explained a little bit ago, personally, I'm helping the bugs and the bunnies, and so I'm the cheerleader on the side saying, "Yes, this is a great thing." But the ripple effect how how does it help? the local store owner or the school system or the hospital, right. just how does it relate to all? And so some some extremely intelligent uh, economists worked with us to help us understand. And they said, 
okay, honestly, back back then, mm-hmm. with the money coming in and the expenditures, you're probably looking at about 20% is what you're addressing of the loss. Wow. Right? It's a sliver. It's a sliver. That has improved mm-hmm. for two reasons. One, we've gotten better at what we do. Okay. The learning curve has 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 softened. Two, funding has increased to address the problem. So no longer are you doing small, and I don't use this loosely, but $10 million projects. Mm-hmm. You're looking at 30, 40, 60 billion dollar or a billion dollar project mega projects mega projects to help the coastal zone and then as was shown to me recently our background loss rate is declining a little bit and the, what's a background loss rate so so what is the conversion of land to water okay again back in the 90s and into the 2000s we would use the phrase, and it's probably still being quoted in the paper, you're losing a football field every hour. Okay. <laughs> right? right? Yeah, I've heard that. Well, that's a lot. 24 hours a day. That's a lot of acres. Right. What imagery is showing us now mm-hmm. is that that has declined a little bit. Oh, and well, so that's good news. It could be, or 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 it's a head scratcher. You know, as okay. somebody like, like me, I sit down and, and I think about this is, is that because the soft material is already gone or that things are improving? I don't think that's the answer because we talked about sea level coming up and more more flooding events. Yeah. And so it, it's not a straightforward answer, and I'm, I'm not going to yeah. pretend to answer it. But I'm just thinking maybe the tides are turning, you know, something. Well, I, 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 I would like to think that it's the first two reasons that, that we've gotten smarter about how to do it yeah. and we're expending a little bit more money to do it. Um but it's still a battle, and and the number that you gave at over seven hundred million dollars a year is up significantly, right? Particularly from twenty ten um, to since before twenty ten to now, and that that's part of that answer. But how much do we need more? You know, the the Army Corps of Engineers has to keep the Mississippi River flowing for commerce. Right. Okay. We talk about flooding New Orleans, all very important. Baton Rouge, very important. Absolutely. But it's commerce. As the Mississippi drains the United States, mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of commerce is tied to that river. Farmers in the Midwest, mm-hmm. oil and gas from down here. All right. It's all tied. At some point, and, and the Corps of Engineers has a fantastically large budget to manage the river. Mm-hmm. I worry that the public of the United States is going to say, you know, I don't know if it's worth that anymore. Maybe maybe we're going to have a way, maybe it's the railroads, or maybe it's this other way to move our goods and services, and the river's not it. And if that happened, what is Louisiana going to do as the recipient of all that water, the final right. recipient before going to the Gulf and the sediment? What, what's going to happen? So it seems like we're kind of far away from developing a more efficient mode of transport. I guess, I mean, you could probably talk about like autonomous trucking and different things like that. I mean, I I don't know the numbers, but it would seem like, I mean, shipping down the Mississippi would be by far the most economical means of transport. Well, let me give you a parallel issue. There's this 
a, this uh, annual development in the Gulf of Mexico. It's called the dead zone. Okay. And it's tied directly to nitrogen concentrations in the water of the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. As it hits the Gulf of Mexico, you have a massive increase in algae, and okay. then you have a death of the algae as it as it dies. And so what it does is it robs that water column of oxygen. And so animals that are caught in that zone, mm-hmm. as it literally looks like a slug moving through the Gulf of Mexico, it kills untold amounts. You can see it? Like no, in aerials? or You take it by measuring. So, oh, okay. So scientists are out there on the ships and they're taking water uh, oxygen levels. Right. Okay. And so every year it, it's published. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, where does that nitrogen come from? Hmm. The nitrogen comes from two... Well, okay, I'll give it three. Mm-hmm. Cities and towns that aren't properly treating runoff and okay. sewage effluent. Okay. You have agriculture, okay, which we're, we were growing for the world. And so how do you grow more food as you put more nutrients down? And then you have this uh, industry as livestock okay, where they, they have not come up to standards yet as far as getting rid of agricultural waste mm-hmm. from chicken farms and um, uh, pork and, and to lesser extent beef. Kind of the environmental side of the food industry. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so our response is you're killing the seafood down in the Gulf of Mexico right. that everybody wants to eat. Yeah. Now you have to implement more expensive measures Okay. to take care of that runoff so it's not getting into the creeks and into the river and then into the Gulf. Okay. And they're very powerful um, uh, opponents and in in the United States and in, in Congress and his legislature to, to review, to reduce that okay. even more. And so it's an ongoing argument that even though we're pointing to the problem down in the Gulf that we see as commercial fishermen as being a problem, okay. the rest of the country may choose to ignore because it's affecting their bottom line and in um, taking care of this waste, whereas before they could wash it into a trench and then the trench would go to a creek and to a river and then to the Mississippi. That's interesting how, I mean, to think about it like that. I mean, I, I was thinking about vessels traveling, but not necessarily all of the 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 runoff in the water and all of the states that it touches and, and kind of is all flowing down and we're sort of, you know, the end of the line here in Louisiana stuck to kind of deal with everyone else's, I guess, waste and runoff, I mean, that's which right. is, that's I mean, exponentially challenging. That's correct. And and we have commercial fishing interests that are some of the richest in the world right? here in the Gulf of Mexico, not just Louisiana, but in the Gulf of Mexico. And whenever they're days. running their farms up north, they're not thinking about our industries no, here. that's right. Not that, always. Well, yeah, not always, but they should be. They should be. <laughs> Maybe they'll think more after they listen to this podcast. Hopefully so. (laughs) So in your opinion, um, what are some of the most important projects that would have an impact on our coastal efforts? I think right now is is we're probably at the the point in, in the plan where we need to look up, review what we've done. Mm-hmm. and how to better improve it. Okay. As humans, we tend to get comfortable in okay. in understanding 
And so we think we know, but Mother Nature is constantly changing around us. Yeah. Case in point is I'm familiar with Southwest Louisiana. It's where I did most of my research. And in Southwest Louisiana, their previous, their largest problem was saltwater intrusion. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean man created a network of canal systems, usually shipping type canals that would allow tides to come further inland into, okay. a, into a marsh that normally would not have seen much salt water in, un, unless there was a hurricane. And so what happens is the plants can't adapt as they're seeing more and more salt water too fast. They can't adapt, and so the plant community dies, and the substrate or the mud washes away. And okay. you end up with Swiss cheese. And so if you looked at southwest Louisiana, from the landscape, it, it's Swiss cheese. So as a response, landowners started slowing down saltwater intrusion. Okay. They took measures, levees, water structures to let water out and a little bit in, and they did a fantastic job of doing it. Unfortunately, Mother Nature has changed the game around them, mm -hmm. so it's not so much salt water. Those channels are still there. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing over the last eight years is a wetter-than-normal cycle. So it's raining more in the Midwest. Okay. It means more drainage coming through. It's raining more in Louisiana. Yeah. And so we're seeing it in the Mississippi now. We've had two high water events in one year, in such case that they had to open the Monicare Spillway for a second time. First time in its history that it was open twice in one year. Wow. Okay, that's, I didn't know that. The, the river waters did not go down after the heavy rain events of early spring. Okay. And now the snow melt is coming down from Iowa and Nebraska. All this is draining. It's finally getting to us. And the river, river popped back up. They're seeing the same problem in southwest Louisiana. Oh. And so their battle now isn't salt. It's being flooded. Oh. And so... We need to start looking at the landscape, not just John Foray landowner that might have 10,000 acres, but let's look at a million acres and how can I move this water more efficiently that, okay. it's, that it's not wasteful, don't want that, Right. but it's also not harmful to the landscape to where the marsh, believe it or not, wetlands can drown. They, they're just too much water. They, the plants can drown. Okay. So I guess I never thought of that. Right. Most people don't. And, and if you drive to New Orleans and you're coming over the lake and you see that swamp just before you get into the, uh, the uh, Metairie area, mm -hmm. right, off, right off the lake, it's declining. It's too much water. Okay. Even a cypress tree can drown, right? Wow. Salt water can do it too. And if you go further down the Mississippi River, you see large standing forests that are or just skeletons standing, and that's more salt water. But too much water can drown the system. And so, you know, what do I see as the most important is paying attention to the signals we're getting from Mother Nature. And we may have to give up on what we knew was correct 10 years ago okay. of salt water. Our new battle is too much water, and it's mm -hmm. fresh. How do we evacuate it? To allow the, the marsh system 
to be a function as a marsh system. And not just for the bugs and bunnies, now we're talking about the plants and the plant cycles and how does a marsh keep up with sea level rise. And that's being able to grow and die and grow and die on an annual basis. And so you're you're creating the the marsh substrate for the plant community, future plant community to grow on. These are really interesting challenges. It is. It is. And and I I give full credit to my awakening to some very smart people with the state of Louisiana, mm-hmm. biologists who have been monitoring the state on a coastal basis for the last 11 years. And we're finally collecting enough data over a long enough period to where mm-hmm. you start to see trends repeat themselves. Patterns are starting to repeat themselves. And they were astute enough to say, hey, Dr. John, what do you think about this? And not just Dr. John, Dr. Nyman, what do you think about this? Dr. Twilly, what do you think about You'll this? You'll have a coastal community of scientists. Yes, all the across all the universities, there yeah. are coastal scientists that are continually doing research with their graduate students. And then you have the appliers like me that are saying, okay, I'm taking this and I'm going to give it a shot and, and try and apply it. Or yeah. modify it because in a perfect experiment, you don't account for some things. And so we need to account for. And so it's, it's, a, it's a real awakening. And now I take it to, to my task is to educate the owners. So to make right. sure that the landowners and those that manage that landscape can prepare, can prepare themselves. Yeah. That's exactly a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, it's a lot to prepare for. Right. And just on kind of a tangential note, I really like how not only are you yourself awakened, but you're also encouraging that among your team to continue their training and education. And, you know, we have Koi who recently earned his master's and, you know, with your backing and support and encouragement, you know, we have this next gen coming up. And it's going to continue on all of these efforts in in these sort of ecologically, economically friendly ways. Um, and I just, I admire that about you and your personality and your approach to leading your team. I think it's really great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I'm from a large family here in Lafayette, and um, I was born towards the tail end of that family. And I often didn't say much. Believe it or not, I often didn't talk much. <laughs> I observed, and my parents raised us that to know that there was no such thing as a dumb question. Mm-hmm. So always question. And now they call it thought. You're, you think about things. Oh, that's true. I do spend a, a probably exhaustive amount of time just observing and asking questions. Mm-hmm. And, and as the father of five, I know that... I'm familiar from 17 to 37 year time frame of mm-hmm. children, of their needs and wanting to know things quickly, assure, mm-hmm. give, guarantee me an answer right now. Yeah. And it's just not so straightforward, particularly with science. Right. And, and as I, I touched on that ability to think about it and to come about it from a different approach outside the box, I think is a good thing for all of us. Yeah. We'll, we'll all learn. Yeah. Definitely. So as our closing question, you've made it to the grand finale. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know the rough part is over. No, I love all of your answers. It's really insightful. So closing question, what fuels you? What fuels Dr. John Foray to live his life to the fullest? Wow. Um, so you haven't asked me about my, my history too much. I, I am an engineering flunky. Okay. okay? Um, I was always had a strong mathematics aptitude. And I believe it's because I like geometry. In fact, most listeners probably don't know that I was a land surveyor in a previous life. Okay. Yeah. Worked for a little company in Lafayette. But I always enjoyed the puzzle of doing surveys, Mm -hmm. measuring distances and angle. How are we going to close this survey? Will it be accurate? Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. And I I get the same sense of looking at our coastal landscape as it's a puzzle. And I I don't have all the answers. I don't have many correct answers. Every now and then, you land on the right, what seems to be the right answer. Mm. And that's what fuels me is always questioning, trying to come up with a solution, and helping folks. That's, That's what keeps me going. I love that. The perfect ending to our podcast. And again, I so appreciate your time and uh, willingness to participate. Thank you very much for this opportunity, Catherine. All right. Bye, y'all.